Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show. Coming off of the Indianapolis 500. That sure was boring. Nothing to talk about. <laughs> ah, it is Thursday morning, Thursday the 1st of June. 10.04 p.m. P.m.? No, a.m. I've been up since like 4 a.m., 3.30, y'all. I'm a little bit cracked out, but hey, what else is new? We're going to do this again. Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your weekend IndyCar listener Q&A show powered by you. The awesome questions you send in our pal Jerry Siddeth. Got to see him twice in May at Indianapolis. So great to see Jerry. Been a little while. Jerry grabs all those questions you post on our Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page and on my Twitter handle and sorts through them and decides which ones would be best to make some podcasty type fun. And so thanks again to you, Jerry, for grabbing all those questions. Thanks to everyone for sending those in each week. He tells me that we have, this is my favorite official unit of measurement, by the way, a heck of a bunch. Oh, we've got a heck of a bunch of questions here. I think over 3,500 words worth. Um, also knowing that <laughs> I need to tip out the door in about an hour to head to the airport where I will be uh, flying to good old France. Be missing the Detroit IndyCar weekend this weekend, but we'll be heading to France for about 12 days. Be my 11th time covering the 24 hours of Le Mans. Happens to be its 100th anniversary of the very first. Be there working with the awesome folks at Garage 56 doing a lot of daily videos and other content with them. I uh, would imagine I will also be firing some stuff back for IndyCar. And thanks to the power of VPN, I do indeed hope to be able to watch the Detroit Grand Prix late Sunday after the Le Mans test day is over. So, yeah, uh, let's do this. Let's say a big thank you, as we always do, to the partners who support our show, that being Cooper Tires, Amazing folks who power the USF championships. Also, to Discount Tire, newly involved in the USF championships this year. Long-standing friends at the Justice Brothers, makers of automotive chemicals and lubricants. And then our original partner, now year seven, whatever, it's, it's crazy. TorontoMotorsports.com, motor racing memorabilia, all from the kind people in Canada, Derek Koska. Pay them a visit. They really do have some pretty cool stuff there. So with that rostrum of thank yous and appreciations and gratitudes demonstrated, let's dive right in. Know that I've probably answered a number of the questions here, either in this week's racer mailbag or online or in video form. So might not repeat some of the things you've probably already read about, digested, and are ready to move on from, from the Indy 500, but we should try and do maybe half hour, 45-ish minute show. And then coming out of Detroit next week, we will pick up more content and we'll do another episode from there. So why don't we open as we've been doing to our pal, thanks to our pal Jim Kaiser with some haiku who says, I sure do hope that Kyle Kirkwood's flying wheel missed Marshall's rental. It did. Um, yes, it did. But the the really cool lady, Robin, who uh, had her car hit, I did read on ESPN that Roger Penske, owner of many auto dealerships, will be replacing her car. So good on him 
for that. Uh, Eric Franklin, you say, MP, to many of us, you're the leading journalistic voice in the IndyCar paddock. Well, that's kind of you. But that voice for me growing up was Robin Miller. Same here. That's why I carry my Robin Miller lapel pin on my hat at every race. He says he was a long advocate for Joseph thought the world of his talent said i couldn't help but wonder as joseph came into the paddock uh stands after his win on sunday what robin would have made of that scene well yeah if you watched uh my post-race video recap definitely mentioned uh robin and got a little teary there and mentioned robin as well in the winner's interview with joseph so if not you might pay those uh a little visit there eric on racer.com i think he would have loved it I think he would have been cackling and just loving it. Why? Joseph, not someone who's super extroverted, right? He is a self-professed introvert. And of the many things Robin always wanted for Joseph, it was for greater public adoration, uh, him to make a bigger impact with fans, with the public in general, if not just on his own, through his own personality, through IndyCar attempting to make him a bigger part of their promotional plans. What he did Sunday just naturally certainly fit that. Probably the biggest demonstration of emotions uh, I've ever seen from him, and that's having been there right as he climbed out of the car when he won his first championship uh, in 2017 at Sonoma, uh, and again in 2019, having been there and seen all of pretty much all of his greatest lifetime racing achievements. This to me was just huge. And so I think Robin would have just been cackling and applauding and, and good on you, son. Uh, go get it. Go have some fun. It was just such a genuine thing and could have climbed the fence, but you know, that's Elio's territory. So that wasn't his first instinct, but just to go and celebrate with the fans and make this their own right uh i think that's pretty amazing and i do not think that will be the first time that someone does that uh let me let me go ahead and say that with better words i don't think it's the last time we will see that um yeah i think it's pretty cool i know robin would have loved it and probably would have been the first question he asked him about if robin was there for us to do the winner's interview together um chris hoffman you say marcus erickson said the last restart was dangerous and unfair how so was j this just sour grapes on his part and or did he have a valid point eh. if the roles were reversed joseph newgarden would have probably been saying man can't believe that's what happened to me this was always going to be something chris with how things played out in IndyCar's choices on what to do in terms of cautions and or red flags with how they chose to officiate just guaranteed to set up someone being really, really disappointed and feeling that things were done the wrong way. Had they stayed yellow and finished under yellow, Joseph would have been livid. Uh, what the heck? Here I am. Could have easily won the race. You went red two other times in the last whatever it was 13 14 laps why not now um and would have been uh, again i don't know if it'd be sour grapes but i just look at this chris and say 
if they stayed yellow, Marcus wins. Joseph is livid, saying, why did you not go red? They went red. Marcus, just a sitting duck, and gets past, finishes second. Of course he's pissed. Why didn't you stay yellow? And, yeah, so honestly remove joseph and marcus from this and i think drop in any two competitive drivers and this is exactly what we're going to hear one side was going to be pissed with how it was handled uh the way indycar chose to handle it with going red again pretty much guaranteed to have a marcus erickson or similar feeling the way that they did uh mato Corey, you say mp uh you say Mato Cori is pronounced like Moto GP. Okay. Um thank you. I'll just call you Moto GP for now and that way I'll uh I'll remember for sure. You say it's a nickname, by the way. Uh you say finishing under green. Uh just like everyone else is saying or thinking. Was that trying too hard? He says I know we all want it to finish under green, but we all hate gimmicks like NASCAR does to extend the races. But this was right up there with that kind of gimmickry, wasn't it? Um, I don't know if I see it in the same same exact vein, but let me pull this up because I did ask IndyCar for some insights on how they chose to officiate the end of the race. I didn't find an exact use for this in the mailbag, but hey, maybe we get a little bit of hashtag breaking exclusive scoop in the old podcast here so here's three bullet points sent to me on how we ended the race the way that we did and like i said i hadn't published this but maybe this will provide some uh, maybe further insights indycar does everything it can to finish under green flag conditions but only to the prescribed race distance so in that capacity, nothing like NASCAR. We're not doing multiple green-white checkers. So sticking to the race length of 200 laps. Cool. Next bullet point, IndyCar's rules provide options to achieve this goal, which is repeatedly communicated to competitors prior to every event. Okay, fair enough. Um, this might address the, well, how did they do that? Isn't that contravening rules? And where can I find the specific thing? that says they can pull out of the pits and go green at the end of that lap. Well, there's also the note here that whether you found the exact words to allow that or not, and I can also mention I might have had one or more race directors from other series reach out and say, uh, could you help me understand? Because I don't grasp how they allowed themselves to do that. And in light of, the second bullet point here, which I'll just read again quickly, IndyCar's rules provide options to achieve this finish under green goal, which is repeatedly communicated to competitors prior to every event. There's also latitude in, I believe, just about every set of sporting regulations, whether it's motor racing, stick and ball, whatever. I'm not saying every sporting league do, does this, but I know most in motor racing do, where whether it's written down specifically saying they can do it or not, there's some sort of catch-all, give ourselves the power to make decisions as we see benefit the sport or benefit the situation uh, as best as possible. So there's kind of the, we're in charge and these are the rules we wrote. If something happens where we might want to 
dictate a little bit uh, differently than what rule 12.9 Z R dot whatever says, well, we can't plan for everything. Got to give ourselves a little bit of wiggle room to adjust on the fly if needed. Then the final bullet point here, each red flag was issued to provide the opportunity for a green flag finish and to give the AMR safety team time to properly return the track to racing conditions. So there you go. Uh, does everything they can to, it can to finish under green rules, give them options to make that happen. And they communicate that repeatedly to their entrants and drivers. And those red flags were indeed done to try and preserve that opportunity to finish under green. So uh, there you go. Um, back to your greater point here, MotoGP. I'm good with trying to finish under green as they did. I also would have been perfectly fine if they decided we're finishing under caution. I think as I might've mentioned in my farewell from Indy video on Monday, I would have felt bad for Marcus if he ended up winning the race under yellow. Yes. You get a, another image of himself on the Borg Warner. He'd get a big old fat check. He'd be the first two-time winner since Elio Castro Neves 22 years ago. All that great stuff. In terms of how it was remembered by the 300 plus thousand in attendance and maybe the millions at home, I don't know if that would have been the most popular. And there are some Indy 500 wins where folks either just forget about them because the finish was unremarkable or actually have a bit of a, a negative reaction to them for a sustained period of time. And that was my thought watching Marcus go by uh, under caution before they threw that final red of if they stay yellow, I'm good with it, but I think he's going to be showered with booze uh, because this was a pretty exciting race up to that point. And I don't, again, not him for him doing anything wrong, more of a boo in general towards IndyCar. And I think that would have been sad. So, um, yeah, would have been fine either way. And also saw that no matter who ended up being the winner, there was going to be some fallout, which indeed we've had. Um, let's see. Fong boy. That's a new one. Uh, I'm a hundred percent in agreement with Rossi about the extreme level of restart shenanigans, both the very slow North shoot antics and the apparent jump starts. Any thoughts? Uh, total agreement as well. Heard from a number of drivers who were there in the middle of it going, what was this? Quick thought here, knowing that again, this is going to be a shorter episode than usual. IndyCar does an amazing job at just about every event we go to with TV monitors, I shouldn't say TV, video monitors everywhere, the EM marshalling system, which tracks all the cars through GPS within, you know, six inches of wherever they are, uh, tons of timing loops. There's so much information available for the series to look at where cars were, if they have done something wrong, sped through, uh, a local yellow uh, jumped somebody out of position um, doing bad things in general. There's seemingly 
an overabundance of video and now GPS tracking to help the series, all the folks in race control to say, yep, you're good. No, you're bad. This was right. This was wrong. I could be making a gross misjudgment in what took place at this Indy 500, but it seemed like the strict super under the watchful eye aspect that we've gotten everywhere else this season. And I assume we will have this weekend in Detroit and afterwards at Elkhart and so on. It didn't feel like that was taking place in Indy. It felt like, Hey, so we have these crashes or engine blowups or who knows what that lead to cautions uh, or reds. But again, you, you pretty much tend to go yellow or caution first before you go red means cars are going to have to circulate behind a pace car. Eventually we're going to have to go back to green and we're not going to see any of the proverbial shenanigans coming out of turn two as you're getting ready for a restart, but we will see them in three, the short shoot leading to four and then potentially coming out of four. I don't know how many monitors they had to observe everything there. I do know that again, having spoken with them, done a video about this EM marshalling technology and how precise everything is of knowing where the cars are seemingly everywhere at all times. Um, I don't know if it's needing more cameras there, more people to monitor those cameras, more, you know, physical observers with binoculars, but I was very surprised at how lots of folks were jumping restarts, running into one another, et cetera, et cetera. And the general appearance of lawlessness that if unsanctioned gives the absolute appearance of being sanctioned. If I walk up to somebody and punch them in the mouth and folks kind of sort of see it, but do nothing about it, it would give you the impression that, Hey, around here, it's okay to go around and punch people in the mouth. If you're going to jump people on restarts, you're going to hit people, uh, coming to the green, etc., etc. And despite what we think is adequate number of video devices to see these things and, uh, GPS data to tell you whether someone's in front of someone when they shouldn't be and so on. If these things are not leading to action, you have to wonder whether they're being seen or if they're being seen and a men and women have at it approach has been applied to the biggest and most important race on the calendar. That's the mystery to me here. Is this just that? Is this the referees at the Super Bowl saying, well, you know what? We're seeing the same holding penalties and we're seeing all the same exact fouls that take place in all the regular season games. But since this is the Super Bowl, eh, we're going to kind of swallow the whistle a wee bit uh, or a decent amount. I don't know. Again, I don't have no answers to this 
you can ask and what are they going to say yeah we were up there but we decided to not officiate as strongly as we should have you're never going to get that um so it just leads to questions of did they see it did they not see it Uh, based on the inaction i just have to believe that this was sanctioned because otherwise there needs to be some changes so yeah why at indy behavior allowed that we would not allow at long beach st pete mid ohio iowa wherever else uh your guess is as good as mine uh let's get down to a couple of final items to close the show louise smith how you doing louise louise dear friend look forward to seeing her when uh, we get to portland she is one of a few friends of the show for sure uh should also mention who else should we mention here that are dear friends of the show uh brian kroll fighting whether it's cancer or fighting some form of uh, worrisome medical challenge um nothing but love for louise who's uh, been beating the heck out of cancer which makes me super happy uh she says sending love and healing to your family and she also says i don't think i'm alone wondering why it took so long for the first red flag to be displayed the track was obviously a mess we would need time to clean up the next two red flags were thrown almost immediately had that first one been thrown sooner there would have been more time on track to sort things out instead of a nascar style one lap shootout was it exciting no doubt but at the cost of good racing no one wants to see a race end under yellow with laps to go he also said i also wanted to say that as someone whose access to attending races is limited peacock provided great coverage over 60 hours she says she was on the edge of her seat for this race i'm with you there on peacock for sure louise uh, i thought they did an amazing job massive massive thanks to lee and townie and uh townie's new protagonist we thought townsend and paul tracy used to get into it uh i thought we were going to see some bows getting thrown between uh townie and hinch that was hilarious uh i'm with you here um i don't think it was an instant we need to go red decision meaning oh clearly red right now i don't think it was just an instant aha i'm guessing that there was some debate about whether to stay yellow or go red and you know we can't change history here but there was certainly the possibility for all of the cars and the safety car to get around the track to keep circulating under caution if need be um i do wonder if the safety car had been dispatched and they just cruised a wee bit slower than usual to extend the laps and create more time without burning a couple extra laps allow everything to be cleaned up everything to be hauled away everything to be inspected make sure the barriers were good um i do wonder if we just stayed yellow with that kirkwood and rosenquist crash if we would have needed the other two reds again can't obviously uh predict what would have happened with something that didn't happen but i can see the concern of we want to preserve laps so 
let's stop this. But I also do, we look in hindsight and go, would we have had, I don't know what the number is, what it was, uh, lap 185. Would things have been different if they just stayed yellow? Do we get to 193 and we're ready to go green or 195? I don't know. Could have gone red right away with people crashing again, but just, I do wonder. Um, presented with the same oper- the same scenario, part of me wonders if IndyCar just decides next year on lap 185 if there's a big crash, whether they should just stay yellow and not be in the biggest rush with the safety car. Obviously, you don't want cars stalling or um, things getting too cold, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You need to flow air through the radiators to keep things cool on the engine side but you don't want everything on the tire and whatever side to just go ice cold but anyways um i'm thinking they will come out of this with a pretty deep list of what if we have a late race calamity crash big scary thing or two and are there other prompts that we might run through or ask ourselves before deciding to go red How's this? If the cleanup was taking longer than expected, they could have gone red on lap 192, 193, 4, whatever, and said, okay, uh, we just need some extra time. Or 188, again, who knows? But um, by going red um, on 185, it did just seem like they kind of set a precedent uh, that they would need to follow if another significant crash happened um quietude 38 you're gonna help get us somewhat towards the finish line here say what can be done to prevent a repeat of the launched tire off of kirkwood's car so it looked like the wishbone shattered so i assume the tether got severed and the entire hub assembly was still attached to the wheel when it got launched which is even more terrifying than just an uncontrolled wheel and tire still waiting on well let me rephrase that I don't know if we're going to get anything super public and official about what happened. Um, I did some investigating of my own before I spoke about it. Um, Can't tell you exactly what was the root cause of that wheel and tire and whatnot being launched, meaning the specific thing that caused it to be freed from the car. Whether it is the anchor point for a tether being ripped from an upright um, or the drive tra- on the drivetrain side, whether it's a tether being severed, being sheared, um, it's an obvious question and concern. And this might not be the answer that everyone wants to hear. There's no way we are ever, ever, ever going to prevent this from happening again. Unless we encase the wheels and tires in some sort of box, some sort of something where nothing that is rotating uh, can leave the vehicle. And we will need large steel cages around them, um, even cars with fenders lose wheels. So um, this is 
a situation where something that wasn't supposed to happen did. We are so fortunate, obviously, that this did not get into the stands. I was at the, I think, and I, if I'm wrong, I apologize, but at least for my memory, last time this happened at an IndyCar race where a, a wheel tire got into the crowd, I think was Charlotte 1999, was it? Um, was there, happened to see it. Uh, in front of me was on the timing stand for the, uh, the team I was working with, and there were fatalities. Um, I was fortunate to not see the wheel strike people. It's just such a fast blur, but did see it go into the stands, and I think kind of as I was tracking that thing super quickly, saw it get there and basically close my eyes because who on earth wants to see that? Um, it's as bad as it gets. This is just something, whether it is a crazy high-speed oval, whether it's a road course, street course, this is always a possibility. Um, could be something else being broken off the car. Lots of things are tethered. Uh, the hashtag front noses, rear wings, you name it. There are so many things that can be broken off of the cars. Strakes in the diffuser, which are basically like three or four, five foot long darts pointed at one end. Um, some sort of crazy crash, and that goes flying off a car at 175 miles an hour, and it goes spinning up and over uh, fences. Um, not trying to be an alarmist guy, and I'm not trying to say that there is not a responsibility from IndyCar to continue trying to do everything they can to prevent such things. These, I'm just overstating that. That part's obvious. But at no point in time do I, have I, or will I in the future expect a open-wheel race car with bits and pieces that can be hit and broken off, sheared off, whatever, uh, from never leaving the vehicle, even if they have steel tethers attached to them. Um, there's going to be freak occurrences like this one, and the risk of injury, if not fatality, is always there. So unless we truly cage these animals and cover them up with things that uh, would not allow anything to break off, and the cars then spiral upwards in weight and become horrendous things to drive and look like just something that things that are visually unappealing that no one would probably want to look at, much less watch race, which would also be slow as heck. This is part of the risk. So they'll have an answer, at least internally on this. I'm guessing there will be some modifications, adaptations, something to try and prevent this specific failure from happening again but we're never going to get to a place where this never ever happens without radically redoing what an IndyCar happens to be uh what else tony chef 20 i'll pick one question after yours and then we will say farewell say thoughts on marcus versus pato says i think that pato shouldn't have made the move however I do see the point that people are making that Marcus squeezed him. Not sure which way to go. 
with this one super easy and it's what i said in my post race video as well pato made a last lap move with eight laps to go um did marcus crowd him give him not enough room etc yeah sure i mean <laughs> it's it's not the kind of thing that anybody is looking to encourage uh, at this stage of the race sure take that um did pato get three quarters of the way alongside probably yeah but they're starting to turn as well um this to me was completely unnecessary uh minus this there's seemingly a really good chance we are celebrating young pato award as winner of the indy 500 and if not the winner second place third i mean he was <laughs> he and joseph were just on fire um the timing of this made no sense the forcefulness of this at this stage of the race made no sense so do we look at the specifics of what happened on that lap in turn three and how marcus reacted to this that and the other i don't know i didn't look at this as a marcus thing i looked at this as a dude why here why now if this is lap 200 you're two corners from the checkered flag and this is the one and only move you think you can make to win chuck it down the inside and pray nobody wants to be remembered for finishing second so give it a whirl and you pull it off you're the winner of the indy 500 and if not you're in the wall and there you go with whatever it was eight laps to go nine lap whatever it was zero cents made here's another just quick thing so what did pato have speed big momentum great draft off of marcus did he have to chuck it down the inside of turn three on lap 192 or whatever it was absolutely not it's not as if marcus was in was unbeatable who led more laps than anyone else at the indy 500 this year i am feeling pretty confident in saying it was a guy by the name of pato award right led 39 of the 200 laps only person who was remotely close was alex Pillow terms of laps but pato was the most dominant leader of the day did he need to force the issue on again lap 192 lord no so i don't know if this is a hindsight i has this i know it's not a hindsight thing um i heard from two indy 500 winners uh, some who've won the indy 500 more than once uh say what'd you do why you didn't have to do that you had speed you had them you're gonna get them you didn't have to try that there all you had to do was just pedal the throttle a little bit just just pull back a wee bit stay on his tail through three continue using that great momentum pick him off down the straight leading into turn one right it, it, like no disrespect to marcus or honda or the chip ganassi racing team but they didn't have the speed to win with a wound up and highly competitive chevy behind 
them. This was a Chevy year. Chevy had a little bit more. Newgarden said it after the race. Tim Sendrick said it after the race. The results told us that, yep, uh, between the two, a Pato or a Newgarden had that extra oomph. And so that's why the guy led uh, 35% or for whatever, a huge percentage of the Indy 500. So that to me is the main takeaway here without question. Good old Tony Chef 20. No reason to force the issue there with so many laps to go. Clearly faster than Marcus. Bide your time. Get through two corners. Lead's yours. Granted, if we end up having a late race red again, um, he probably wouldn't have wanted to lead. But regardless, <sighs> patience, young Jedi. Patience would have done pato a world of good there but there was this urgency of i was too nice last year and i gotta be aggressive whenever i see it i'm going for it you go i really hope that uh that is not the the last best chance he has to win the indy 500 uh let me see just gonna try and pick one here to close the show you know it's not a question it's from one of our, our dearest friends of the prude listener group if you are indeed looking for a family of friends who love racing indycar in particular who get together at races talk frequently directly with one another but also on a daily basis i think on discord and you want to join in just want to have some new racing friends and join a, a pretty sizable family of amazingly kind and funny and interesting folks send an email and i'm not a part of this it just uh happened to start um credit our pal john wojnar who's getting married we had a little uh uh party to celebrate him the night before the 500 at um gasoline alley's uh aunt and uncle's house there in speedway indiana but uh, send an email to prudayrocks at gmail.com p-r-u-e-d-a-y-r-o-c-k-s at gmail.com and they'll welcome you in um one of the the great leaders uh powers of force and love for indycar behind all of this cassie also known as at mama underscore g-force she's going to close the show for us uh she says no question just praise for my awesome prude family going to a track and having friends everywhere is amazing she says thank you mp for connecting us to each other and the sport we love to folks nervous to join the prude don't be we're all kinds and we'd love to have you that's really sweet to send that in um appreciate y'all appreciate the prude like you wouldn't believe obviously jerry thank you for putting together the questions and I look forward to having some non-Indy 500 stuff to talk about coming out of Detroit. Um, little tip here from what I'm hearing from a couple drivers and engineers. There's been ongoing work to grind down some bumps, but is this track going to be still bumpy enough to be pretty serious, tough to wrangle? Pit lane, split pit lane situation. Here's a lot of question marks as to how this move back to downtown for the Detroit Grand Prix 
will play out and there are some genuinely nervous folks as to how well it's going to go so yeah separate from just enjoying racing um there gonna be some question marks uh that are we hope will be answered uh, by the end of friday's opening practice session uh, i will be landing at charles de gaulle in good old Paris, and uh hopefully getting out of there within an hour or two of landing then driving the two and a half hours or so south west to le mans um getting settled in and probably not able to follow along on peacock but look forward to talking next week appreciate y'all and just the amazing gift that you are to myself my wife and our cats rocky and rosie who sometimes join in and also obviously to cooper tires the justice brothers torontomotorsports.com and discount tire look forward to speaking to y'all next week